Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. So uh, back in 2015, uh, you may remember, we hosted something interesting in this room that we never had done before as a church. Uh, We hosted a faith forum where we discussed the differences between uh, Christianity and Islam. Uh, Was anybody here for the faith forum? Yeah, it was about seven years ago. So I hosted... And uh, I had my dear friend, Dr. John Weatherly on stage, who was a New Testament professor and, uh, you know, just a a brilliant man to sort of represent the Christian worldview, answer questions from that perspective. Uh, And then I had uh, Imam Muhammad Ramadan Al-Mutam on stage. He is the Imam at the Westport Community Center. It's the mosque three miles down the road. Uh, Brilliant man, has three degrees, a degree in civil engineering, a degree in Arabic, just so, just a smart guy. He's been an Imam in, uh, in Syria and in the United States for over 30 years. So both, uh, both religious perspectives were well represented. Now, the reason why I did this was for two reasons and they sound contradictory, but I think they overlap. They're really important. Uh, reason number one was to give our congregation some practice in learning from and loving those who are different than us. Because you see, you are only as Christian as your capacity to love neighbor, especially your neighbors who are different, especially, especially your neighbors who culture postures as your enemy. We've got opportunity to do that. And for the most part, 98% of our Northeast community learned that day and loved well. It was an incredibly hospitable environment. Now we did get a couple squirrely emails around it all. Um, I remember we had a couple emails leading up to the faith forum where people are like, are you gonna have enhanced security there that, that weekend? And I was like, what, because Muslims will be here? Is that why? I got, we got a, an email afterwards uh, from someone who chastised me for having such a sacrilege of a man on the altar of God. To which I was like, you mean the stage? Because it's not an altar. Last time I checked, we have never sacrificed any goats or lambs up here. This center stands on the altar every day. Can we eat Moravian cookies on the altar? Because, you know, so it was just like a bit outrageous. But for the most part, everybody else embraced it. It was a beautiful thing. Uh, Me and Imam are still friends to this day. I saw his family a couple months ago. at Chick-fil-A, for all places, eating, eating dinner, and I was able to buy his dinner on behalf of our church family and remind him, we love you, and there's so much peace that we can work for together in this city. Now, that was reason number one. On the flip side, reason number two we had the faith forum was because I wanted to clearly articulate for our congregation the irreconcilable differences between Islam and Christianity, because there are some major, major differences. Now, yeah, I see that hand in the back, go ahead. Um, Tyler, are you telling me you can love someone and deeply disagree with them at the same time? No, of course, yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. That's what we do, Christians, with the watching world around us. And again, I thought 
Imam Muhammad and John did a fantastic job of laying out the, the differences really, really well for us. Uh, to be honest with you, one of the things that frustrates me today is there's this common idea that all religions are basically the same. Have you ever heard people say this? Where all religions are basically the same at the end of the day. You heard this? Okay, so oftentimes it's represented by the image of a, of a mountain. You know, and every religious path, I kind of sketched a diagram for you. Every religious path is like a pathway up the mountain, if you will. And so the, you know, skeptic will say, they'll say, you know, every religion starts at a different point, but at the end of the day, they converge on the same point. It's all the same God at the end of the day. Uh, the other common image that's used is, uh, is the image of, um, of, the, of the blind men with the elephant. Okay, I've got that one for you. Now, apparently these are blind scientists with the elephant, but you kind of see the point. You know, the religious skeptic will say, you know, all religions are grasping for the truth, but they're only grasping part of it. You've got one who's grasping the trunk of the elephant saying, well, I, th I think it's a snake. You've got another grasping the leg saying, I think it's a tree, another touching the body. It's a wall, no, it's a fan, it's a spear, no, it's a rope. And that's what religions are like. They're all grasping at the truth, but they can't see the big picture like us. Now, not only do I think that perspective is incredibly egotistical, like we're the ones who see the big picture, right? That's an exclusive truth claim for the record. But the thing that, that bothers me uh, uh, maybe the most about it is that it doesn't pay any heed to what religious scholars actually say. And that is that there are big differences between the way the major world religions see God. Now, if you were to ask me what a better image would be to describe how religions work, I'd actually take the mountain image and I would flip it. This is my perspective. I think all religions and really all human beings have a common human starting point. And then religions sort of diverge on their own path, wind and turn based on their teachings, based on their view of God, based on the culture that they try to create in their community. Uh, Sky Jathani argues in his book, With that the starting point for all religions is actually the common human experience of suffering and injustice in the world. That's where every human religion starts. Jathani writes, uh, we all share a world confused by chaos. We cannot predict what will befall us. We all share a world marred by ugliness. Injustice and evil often appear to triumph and we all share a world plagued by scarcity. We must strive to acquire what we need to survive. The greatest scarcity, he writes, is life itself because we all live under the shadow of death. Now look, when we encounter this sort of senseless suffering and chaotic world, what it results in in the human heart is fear. It's scary. And when most of us are afraid, what we do in response to that is we try to exert control over the environment around us. And that, that's where religion comes into play because for many of us, religion is just a means to exert control over the uncontrollable, over the chaotic world, over the senseless suffering that we can't really understand. Jathani writes, fear and control are the basis for all human religions. From this common beginning, the paths diverge dramatically, splinter, multiply, and finally terminate in different places. But each one, each one is an attempt to overcome suffering, fear, and death by exerting control over the natural and sometimes supernatural forces. 
So the idea is if I just obey God, good enough. If I just do the five pillars or go on the pilgrimage or practice the 10 commandments or sacraments or or whatever, if I just do the right amount of a religious ritual or the right religious ritual or enough good things, then I can put God into my debt. I can obligate him to bless me. I can control him and manipulate his blessing upon my life. That's how most people approach religion. Am I right? Am I right? Now, I would go as far to say, by the way, that this is how, relig- uh, how uh, irreligious people approach life too. It's not just the religious. Irreligious people use this same framework. They start with the common human experience of suffering and chaos and injustice. It scares them just like it scares us. And so in response to this, they try to exert control around the chaotic world. They just don't do it by using religion or God. They do it by using science and technology. That's their God. Uh, the best metaphor to, uh, to describe this is to, is to look, at, uh, look at farming. I've heard this one a few times before. So if you rewind a thousand years ago, uh, the technology around farming wasn't quite what it is today then. Basically, the farmer was at the mercy of the natural world around him or around her. There's only so much you can control there. Like he could till the soil and plant seeds every single day, but at the end of the day, he can't control the soil quality. He can't control the weather. He can't control whether it'll get enough rain or the sun will scorch it out or go through it, drought, whatever. Which means that the farmer, a thousand years ago, is mostly at the mercy of forces outside of his control. which means that he can't control the success of his crops, which means he can't control his own livelihood and prosperity. So in a world like that, what do you do as a farmer? You exert control in the only way you know how. You pray, you offer sacrifices to the gods of the wind or the gods of the rain, the suns, the sky, in order to somehow, some way, convince them to bless your crops. Okay, now, So the story goes, fast forward about a thousand years from that, here we are in the modern day, and so you will be told, science has basically removed the need for God from farming. Because think about agricultural technology. We've got advanced irrigation systems. You can control soil quality through fertilizers or pesticides. There's genetically modified crops, which have caused much controversy, but also much possibility. Don't you see, the enlightened person will say, don't you see, just give it enough time and science will eliminate our need for God. And that's just farming. You can take it and apply it to so many other uh, arenas of life where uh, we've all advanced. Now, for what it's worth, this is a series on prayer. Okay, we'll get there in a second. But I think this is one of the reasons why prayer has been shrunk to such a small, really insignificant role in our society today. Our affluence, our technology, our science, if you will, buffers suffering out to such a degree that it's given us the illusion we're in control. It's given us the illusion of godness. Until 2020, of course. I mean, if anything, the last two years should have burst your bubble of control. We are not in control. Control was an illusion then, it's an illusion today. 
Now, again, for what it's worth, I say praise God for science, praise God for technology. We need Christians in the sciences and in the arts leading the way. Let's advance them. But let's not overinflate their saving power. I mean, need I remind you that of the 6.3 million people that died worldwide of COVID, a million of them were Americans. Need I remind you that at any moment, a natural disaster can strike and totally level, I don't know, a town in Kentucky? Uh, Need I remind you that injustice is not a problem that we have solved in this city, much less in the United States of America. Need I remind you that at any moment a mob can rise up motivated by dishonest and power hungry politics. Need I remind you, it costs $100 to fill up your car with gas right now. No, you don't need to remind me, Tyler, but it does, it does. And I know while inflation may not be a problem for some of you, for people living paycheck to paycheck can radically disrupt their way of life. It came out of nowhere. Okay, oh, then of course there's a quick scroll through our prayer list. As a church, I was praying through some of them uh, uh, this past week and uh, I saw cancer, I saw depression, I saw dementia. And this is America. We got all the science. We got all the world's technology at our fingertips. So look, whether you are looking to religion, to ritual, to science, to technology, or to some combination of all of them in order to take control of your life, let me be the man who reminds you today that it is destined to fail. It will not protect you from suffering. It will not give you the peace that you long for. And the reason why, huge bottom line for the day, okay? Here's the reason why. It's because seeking and exerting control is not the solution to the human condition anyways. It's the problem. According to the Christian story. Now this is where Christianity is so beautifully unique and honestly compelling to me because it breaks away from the way other religions see the world. See, in the face of unpredictable and senseless suffering, the Christian story says that the solution is not to control God. Good luck with that. The Christian story says the solution is to love God. To love him. To face it all. All the suffering, all the chaos, all the justice. To face it all with God. With God. Or... Another key bottom line for you today, withness, according to the Christian story, withness is the key to life. That's right, I made that word up. I did it several months ago. We're bringing it back. I'm gonna make it a thing. Withness, withness is the key to life. It is the unmitigated truth from the beginning of scripture in Genesis to the end in Revelation. Can I show you? In John chapter one, verse one, John writes, in the beginning was the word, that's Jesus, and the word was was with, with God, and the word was God. Now, this is how the nature of God is described by John before creation, before human beings are made. God is Trinitarian, one God, three personhoods who exist in perfect union with one another. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit is the perfection of witness. Genesis one twenty six. Then human beings are made. God said, let us make humankind in our image. 
according to our likeness. What likeness? Well, part of our image-bearing constitution is a longing to live with God. We all have that God-sized hole in our hearts, right? I believe our most fundamental orientation as human beings is a relational one. We are oriented relationally, horizontally to others, but even more importantly, vertically to God. Then sin is introduced into the equation. Sin creates an immediate severing or alienation in a relationship with God and others. But God launches his rescue plan to bridge that alienation and throughout the Old Testament into the New, we see his desire to be with his people. When Moses leads the people of God out of Egypt toward the promised land, what does God tell him to do? Build a tabernacle so that he could dwell with them. Exodus 25, 8 and 22, have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. There I will meet with you. Then Joshua takes the mantle of leadership from Moses. He leads the Israelites into the promised land. And in Joshua 1, 9, God gives him this sort of ordination, challenge and commissioning. Verse nine, this is my command to you, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, but it's really scary out there, God. I know, but here's why you need not fear for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The Psalms are full of the assurance of God's presence, by the way, and the Psalms are our prayer book. Here's one you know, Psalm 23, four. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Then God arrives. And what do they call him? Look, the virgin will conceive a child, she'll give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Then Jesus does his work, prepares for his death and resurrection, but promises the Holy Spirit. John 14, 17, he's the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him, but you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Then Jesus dies, rises from the dead, and the last words Matthew puts on his lips are what? Jesus says, and be sure it is. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The effects of Jesus' ministry, by the way, summarized by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with the word reconciliation. Reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 18, uh, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, reconciliation is really just a $5 theology word uh, for mediation. The idea is that there are two parties they have a dispute, and Jesus is the third party. A third party comes in, right? The dispute is between God and sinners here, and Jesus says, I will reconcile them. And he does it through the cross. So literally, restoring witness is at the core purpose of the cross. Then, of course, we all anticipate the culmination of human history, which is defined by Scripture as the full Withness of God. If I say it enough times, y'all start using it. Withness. Revelation 21, 3, John sees the future. He says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live 
with them and they'll be his people. A little louder for those in the back, God himself will be with them, he says again. So withness is the key to life, y'all. And withness is found primarily through prayer. Now, uh, speaking of science, let's go back to it. Modern scientists are starting to study prayer. Did you know this? They've noticed that prayer is common across culture, common across generation. As science and technology advances, people are still praying and they think it works. So there's been this, uh, this study, uh, this field of study developed called neurotheology. Fascinating little field where scientists are actually scanning people's brains while they pray. They're scanning brains of like Pentecostals while they speak in prayer language. They scan the brains of Buddhist monks while they meditate, which is their form of prayer. Scan the brains of evangelicals while they pray for safety and comfort. And what they have found has been absolutely fascinating. I'll share some of the details with you. Uh, so first, a Harvard Medical School cardiovascular doctor, Herbert Benson, discovered what he called the, and I quote, relaxation response. The relaxation response is released when people go into a state of prayer. Basically, it's a physiological state that shifts people out of their fight, flight, or freeze state into a place of rest and ease. Now, our default, y'all, is fight or flight, right? So, so prayer actually shifts us out of the default. It shifts us out of what's natural into what we might call a supernatural state. Studies have also found that prayer has been shown to cause neurotransmitters, which release dopamine, that bring us to a state of relaxation, focus, motivation, and well-being. In one study, Lisa Miller, the professor and director of clinical psychology at Columbia, found that people who are at a high risk for depression, who pray regularly, tended to have a thicker cerebral cortex, which has been associated with less depression and less anxiety. Another study showed that urban children with asthma cope better. When they pray, another study correlates prayer with less heart attacks and quicker recovery from heart surgery. On February 16th, 2018, uh, two days after the Parkland shooting, where 14 students and three staff were tragically killed, Nicole Spector, an agnostic journalist, wrote an article for NBC News on the power of prayer. This is a sentence I never thought I would say. An agnostic journalist wrote in NBC News an article on the power of prayer. But desperate times call for desperate measures, right? The article was called, This is Your Brain on Prayer and Meditation. She wrote that the shooting drove her to do something that she doesn't really understand, pray. She then shares lots of scientific research about the benefits of prayers. Here's a few more bullets for you. Prayer and meditation. She, found, uh, she, she cites are highly effective in lowering our reactivity to traumatic events. Experience something traumatic, pray. Prayer helps people struggling with addictive urges dramatically. When we pray, we can activate neural pathways that release hormones such as oxytocin, which is the social trust and attachment hormone. And prayer also helps us think clearly when we're struggling to figure out a solution. For the way these aren't Christian maxims, I know they sound biblical, because they are. This is scientific research. So look, while people continue to attack the church for telling people who are addicted or who are you know, mentally ill, people who are sinners to pray about it, 
While Twitter continues to explode every time a national tragedy hits and they say, we don't want your thoughts and prayers. And while the enlightened continue to sort of stick their nose up at those primitive superstitious religious folks who still pray and cite science as their savior, what science is actually saying is um, prayer works, you should try it. Now, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that prayer should be the only strategy. You know that about our church. Should we rerun the refugee video? Like, we're all about activating. Prayer's not the only strategy. I'm saying it should be baked into all the strategies if we're doing life right. Now, this sort of baking prayer into our life, this is what I would call living with God, just living with him. And it's not that you spend every second in prayer. It's not you go in your prayer closet and pray for hours every day because then you become so heavenly minded that you do no earthly good. Rather, the key here is to develop an ongoing and unceasing sense of communion with God. How? Well, let me share personally. For some of y'all, you know that, if you're a close friend of mine, I've been pursuing this for the last year. This has been kind of my spiritual experiment. You should always be trying to raise the bar on your spiritual life, in my humble opinion. So this is what I've been after for about the last 10 months now. I wanted, I wanted to try to center my, my spiritual life in such a way where I could maximize the time where I felt God within me. Let me share just a few practical insights from my own life. You can take them or leave them for whatever they're worth to you. This is, this is what I've noticed. Okay, so insight number one. First, um, I got completely off social media for 10 months because I thought if I'm actually gonna center myself in the presence of God, then I have to get this thing out of my life that I'm addicted to. I have to to get this addiction to screens out of my life. I have to get this thing that's sort of chopping my attention span up out of my life. I have to get all these powerful alternative voices that are discipling me away from Jesus out of my life if I'm going to center my life on him. Okay, that was a bit of, of a lie. I didn't get completely off social media. Let me be clear. I get on social media for three things still. Periodically, probably once or twice a week, I get on our church's social media page to see what was going on. Uh, once or twice a week I get on my gym's page to get my workouts and uh, probably about five or ten times over the last ten months I've gotten on social media, uh, social media to, um, uh, to stalk some of you okay. like, you know, like you'll get the email from the stranger in church and they'll be like eh, and you're like who is this and so you get, on, you get on Facebook and you see their last three posts and you're like oh this explains the email you know so that's what so, okay anyways Besides that, now here's the point, okay? The point is that I go to social media for what I want, okay? It doesn't dictate the terms to me. I dictate the terms to it. I do not get on the newsfeed. The apps are not on my phone. I get on it via the browser, or if I do get on social media, I'll download the app briefly and then immediately delete it afterwards. It has been incredible for me. Now, here's what I would tell you. This has, again, been my own personal experience. But after 10 months of doing this, I have found all the good stuff that you hear about getting off social media, okay, it is absolutely true. It is absolutely true. It actually does improve your mental health. All the anger, 
almost all, almost all the anger and envy and peer pressure I used to feel is gone. Uh, A lot of the vanity in my spiritual life, it's beginning to subside. Like God is doing some deep work on my heart right now and my just propensity towards like self-absorption and self-centeredness and, and, and you know, narcissism, if you will. Doing some deep work. You know that deep need that you have to be seen by others and affirmed and validated? Basically what social media exists for, right? For you to get on and get that little thumb or that little heart from someone else that validates your existence or validates how funny you are, how pretty you are, how victim you are, how whatever you, whatever you want them to see. You know? God is doing some deep work on that. What I found is that withdrawing from social media, I can now get my identity and my sense of self-worth from, I don't know, somewhere else. God, a place that's much more enriching an entity that's much more loving. Social media is fuel for narcissism, it is. I've also found that I think more clearly and nuanced about polarizing issues. When you get those crazy radical voices out of your life and everybody reacting with anger and telling you how awful you are and shaming you for everything, when you get those out of your life and again, you fill up your mind and your heart with more nuanced resources, you start talking to the real people in your life, it changes changes things. Oh, and here's one I hear a lot. A lot of people say, well, I can't get off Tyler because I'll lose track of all of those, you know, relationships that I have. Oh, no, okay. Your relationships with the people who matter most will get better. They will get better because you are more present, less distracted, more focused. You'll get hours of your day back. Now, for what it's worth, I am not promoting a social media free existence. If you've not been around here long, I have a bit of an extremist attitude about things. So I'm just like either all in or all out. I'm not one of those people who are like moderation. It's like, no, in, out, just choose, right? And so um, I'm not promoting, it has its place, it has its use, it has its benefits. Some of you gotta use it for, for work. And I will come back to it someday, I'm convinced of that. But for most of us, the place that we're at right now is that we are so addicted We're so addicted and we're being so deformed by it that you need a detox. Or you need to put some hot, just some high restrictive uh, rules, a rule of life up around your tech life, around your screen life. If you ever really want to begin to cultivate a spiritual life with God. Okay, so that's first. Once you declutter all the alternative voices out, one. Second, this is my second insight here for you. I found that the best way to get the presence of God in uh, is to uh, create several little prayerful connect points throughout the day. Again, key bottom line here. Small intentional moments of prayer fuel all the life you do in between. This is so key. Now I'm gonna say a big number here. I don't want you to be intimidated by it. I actually want you to try it. 10. I want you to try to find 10 prayer moments throughout your day. They can be small. I'll show you one in just a sec. I want you to try to find like, okay, if you're a beginner, five. If you already pray a little bit, go for 10. Try to find five to 10 prayer moments throughout your day where you can reorient your life around his presence. It can be as simple as God, I want to do whatever this thing is you're doing next. I want to go into this meeting with you. Go with me, God. 
guide me. Help me experience your love, your wisdom. Help me to dispense your grace. It's gonna be simple. Now, I have put uh, just a list for you of several different ways that I've found that you can kind of prayerfully connect with God throughout the day. Hopefully these will be of some service to you. But let me just kind of walk you through maybe like a normal day in the life for me and, uh, and, and how I try to just create little small connect points, okay? So first, when I wake up in the morning, rather than grabbing my phone and immediately getting on social media and filling my mind with that, I've developed this habit of just saying a, uh, a centering prayer for the day. I'll say, uh, God, I wanna go with you today. A lot of times I'll name off the big things that I know are on my schedule today. I've got this meeting, I'm coaching ball, uh, you know, I have this lunch appointment and there's just this, uh, there's this problem that I gotta solve. I wanna go with you as I walk through this. Or sometimes it'll just be simple as, God, I wanna go with you today. Help me love God and love others. Six seconds. But it, it centers the day. Within an hour of that, I'll try to do my quiet time, which usually involves 15 minutes of devotional literature and stillness. Probably 50% of my quiet time is stillness. It's silence and solitude. Sit there. Then within about an hour of that, I'll do a devotion with my, my son before I go to work. Uh, in the summer, it's at the kitchen table, usually over breakfast. Uh, during school years, we just take advantage of the drive time. About a 10 minute drive. So during the drive, we'll talk Jesus. I'll tell him a Bible story. We'll pray together before he goes off to school. So by the time I've gotten to work, I've had probably like three prayer times already. At some point in time at work, I try to read scripture. It can just be a small dose of scripture, but at some point I'll do that. I have the advantage of being a preacher, so I get paid to read scripture, which is great for me. Not so great for you, but like you can do it on work hours. They'll never know, right? Like everybody else is on their phone. They're just on Facebook while you're on the Bible app. Get your face in the book. You know the line, right? So that's, just take a little, little prayer time. Uh, you know what I notice a lot of our staff do, by the way, here at, at church, is they'll take a little break from their work and they'll walk a lap. There's a walk a lap around the campus. It's like a five to 10 minute break where they can get a little sunshine and fresh air. And while they walk a lap, they'll pray or they'll grab someone and they'll go and pray together as they walk around the church. That's beautiful. And I bet you, I bet you there's someone at your workplace who's a Christian who you could walk a lap with. Meals, meals are a great reorienting prayer time. Just get back to the habit of just saying a brief prayer before breakfast, before lunch, before dinner. Three minutes, like a minute, a minute, a minute. But again, small moments that fill you up for the in-between. When I go to the gym and I put my AirPods in, by the way, I'm always either listening to, to worship music or something that orients me towards scripture. For some of you, worship music will unlock your prayer life. For many of us, we, we aren't poets, we aren't artists. You may not be able to find the words to express your adoration towards God. I think Christians are probably the worst at adoration prayers. We're great at asking God for stuff. We're not good at just praising Him for who He is. This is what worship music does for you. It puts on your lips for you in beautiful music what you actually feel, what we believe about God. What would happen if you started filling up your commutes with worship music or filling up your, your gym time or whatever it may be? You know, when you're cleaning the house, doing the laundry with worship music, fill the wall of your home with praise to him. By the way, I'm not even including in this small group time or a Bible study or Sunday morning worship, which you should be a part of as a Christian. So you begin to see, 
You begin to see very few of these are long. Most of them are short. But if you mound up the small moments throughout the day, what you find is that it helps you center yourself on the presence of God in the in-between. Small intentional moments fuel the life you do in between. I dare you to try it out. Five or 10 times tomorrow. See if you can't carry it over for a few weeks. All right, here's the last insight I have. This is where we will end today. Last. This is more of a warning than anything. This is what I found. If you do this, beware. It's gonna change you. It will, it will change you. I would say maybe once a day, I walk into a prayer time and out with complete and total spiritual reorientation from God. Like I'll walk into a prayer time angry and vindictive. I'll walk out of it just trusting that vengeance is his and I'm supposed to meet evil with good. I'll walk into it with a hurried, busy and cluttered soul. I'll walk out of it with patience. I'll walk into it burning with just sinful desire. I'll walk out of it with the fruit of self-control. I'll walk into it with anxiety. I'll walk out of prayer time with the peace that passes understanding and it can be just a minute but it's amazing how God can do that it's amazing how I've seen answered prayers just this morning Darian's one of my close buddies but just this morning he grabbed me right before I was walking on to preach the 9 a.m service and he spoke some words of life over me that I've been literally praying about the last two like specifically praying for these things and he says I see this in you and I just meant like that's that comes from the fruit of living a life with God the Holy Spirit's in him it's in you it's in me and we start seeing the interconnections of the work God wants to do inside of us so careful careful if you do this because God will change you oh he'll change you one of my favorite Bible stories of this is the story of Josiah. Uh, Josiah became the king of Judah around 640 BC at the uh, age of eight. Did you know this? Now I have a seven-year-old, so eight-year-old kings, I don't know what's gonna happen in the next year, but it don't sound like a good idea. <laughs> but at 16, something happens to Josiah that leads him to begin to seek God. Second Chronicles 34.3, it says, uh, during the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor, David. And everything changes from this point. Let me just summarize his story for you. First, after that, he goes and destroys all the idols and pagan shrines in the land. Second, he rebuilds the temple. And third, he restores the law of God as the way of the land. Basically what he does is he removes all of the impediments and restores all the tools for a life lived with God to the people of God. And guess what? It works. Total revival breaks out among the people of God. It's a spiritual awakening that's so powerful that God issues a dispensation of grace on an entire generation, all because of this 16-year-old kid. You remember this, right? You remember how this plays out? Okay, the, the Israelites of Judah were about to go into exile, but God says, I'm gonna put that punishment off for an entire generation because of the faithfulness of Josiah and the faithfulness of my people. I'm gonna punt it. Now they eventually do go to exile, the next generation. But I call this generation that goes into exile the revival generation because we have young men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who go to Babylon. Like you ever wonder how these kids who get kidnapped and taken into slavery into a foreign land, 
a foreign land like Babylon who systematically tries to brainwash them, strip them of their cultural inheritance and strip them of their religious identity. How in the world do these kids hold on to faith? Like fast forward 70 years later, Daniel's an old man in Babylon still bowing three times a day towards Jerusalem, praying to Yahweh. How? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego literally commune with God in the fiery furnace. How? How? I'll tell you how. It's really this simple. These children were the fruit of the revival of Josiah that started when he was 16 years old. 16. And he decided to know God. So look, Psalm 62 is the life verse here. I will leave this for you. David's facing the temptations of power and wealth on the one hand and the suffering of relational betrayal and attack on the other. And as this hurricane wreaks havoc all around him, this is what David prays. He says, let all that I am wait quietly before God. For my hope is in him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. My victory and my honor come from God alone. He's my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. Oh, my people, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart to him, for God is our refuge. It's a prayer of witness. So here's what I wanna do. I'm gonna leave Psalm 62, five through eight up there. Would you just leave that on the screen? And what I want you to do is just take one minute. Uh, no, put, put Psalm 62 up there. I'm just gonna leave that lower third up there. I want you to pray it. I want you to substitute, by the way, Jesus' name in there for the personal pronouns for God. I want you to meditate on it. Meditate on the love of God. And then in just a moment, we're going to sing uh, a prayer of praise to Jesus and we'll partake of communion together. Let's take a moment and just be 